Well, greetings and welcome to Fresh Text for the seventh Sunday of Easter 2021. I'm Todd, the editor here at the show. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let everyone know that we have included a brief 15-minute excerpt from our monthly conversation series featuring Kwesi Kanan at the end of this podcast. In addition to being a missionary, pastor, and professor, Kwesi is also a master storyteller and joined John for a conversation centered on biblical storytelling and how embodying the word using powerful storytelling techniques can often help us to transcend the space and time eclipsed by cultural and linguistic trappings that often hinder the spirit of the text. If you enjoy this excerpt, the full conversation, along with three additional monthly specials, are available to all patron saints beginning at our lowest donation level. Simply visit patreon.com slash fresh text to find out more. Thanks again to everyone who has joined the patron saint community and enjoy this fresh text with Amy Peeler. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Rise Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach spiritual formation and systematic theology at Indiana Wesleyan University and Wesley Seminary. My guest this week is Amy Peeler. Amy is professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and a emerging regular here on the show. She's an old dear friend and a, a major scholar of the book of Hebrews and has a number of great books out on Hebrews as well as a forthcoming book about Mary as the mother of God. I believe the title's Mother of God. So yeah, great to have Amy here to talk about our text this week, which is 1 John chapter 5 verses 9 through 13. 1 John 5, verses 9 through 13. And with that, we bring to a close our series on 1 John. So next week, we'll have our uh, standalone Pentecost uh, episode uh, with Beverly Gaventa, and then we'll have our episode after that uh, for Trinity Sunday. That'll be with Chris Bounds. And then we'll be moving back into ordinary time after that, and we'll have some selections from uh, 2 Corinthians and from James and the book of Hebrews and Ephesians. Got a whole bunch of great stuff coming up this year. So I'm real excited about this summer and next fall uh, with readings from the epistles. But yeah, this week is our last in our first John series during the 50 days of Easter. And so we're looking at the sort of last little section before the conclusion, which is 1 John 5 verses 9 through 13. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy Peeler. We 
Would you be willing to read the passage to get I'd us started? I'd be glad to. Awesome. And I'll say a word of prayer after that. First John 5, 9 through 13. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has testified to his son. Those who believe in the son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the testimony, Mm -hmm. the testimony that was at work there and then would be at work afresh here and now. The testimony of you, O God, that you have given about your son, Jesus, through his works and signs, and most of all, in your raising him from the dead, And the testimony that Christ gave concerning himself and the testimony of the Holy Spirit was at work in the church in its earliest days, including in the production of a text like this one that's now been handed on to us. And we're grateful for the testimony of your spirit throughout the centuries in the preservation and interpretation of this scripture. And we ask that Your same Holy Spirit would be at work in Amy and I and in all those listening in, separated as we may be, that that testimony of your Spirit working within us and around us would guide us in our study of your word for the sake of the glory of your name. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom alone we have life. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so what uh, what jumps out at you in this particular passage? We'll we'll zoom in just to the text at hand, and then if we want to zoom out in the second segment to larger issues of First John and or issues in the text, we can. But just in the passage before us, what uh, what strikes you in this text? I think both a theological and anthropological element. So something true about God, and then something true about this audience to whom John is writing. So I'm struck of course, at how similar the letters are to the Gospels. But thinking about the way in which the Father gives testimony to the Son, that interchange in the incarnate life of the Son, who brings glory to the Father, but the Father testifies to the Son, that the incarnate life of Christ is a revelation to us of what the relationship has been between father and son forever. And I realize that gets very theologically complicated and interesting. I think I'm reflecting on that because I've just finished up an essay on inter-Trinitarian relationships. So that's very present at mind for me. But this passage is very clear. It is the father who proclaims, gives testimony about the son. And that to me is a beautiful thing. So that's the first. And then second, then that as is true in the Trinity and how the Trinity relates with us, then we get to participate in this. And so for the readers, the the guarantee, this testimony is that they have life. And that that struck me as very 
internal, very experiential for them. It's an interesting dichotomy that they have this life, but he Mm -hmm. writes to them so that they know that they have the life. That's interesting. Like he has to confirm something they should know experientially. I don't know. I'd love to reflect on that a bit. I think that's a lot of what John does is to say this. uh, Let me tell you what's already true that you should know, but I'm just going to remind you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, you know, as a preacher and teacher, how often we, uh, you know, you'll have like an insight of something you're like, man, I really got to tell my people this. And then you realize like, well, if I just tell them, hey, you dummies, you don't know this, that's not going to go as well. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going to say, well, as you know, yes, <laughs> blah, blah, and, you, and you always frame it as uh-huh. this is what we already know. And of course, there's always people in the room who are like, oh, I didn't know that, but I guess we do. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. So there's some, there's some rhetoric built into that. It can't be dismissed as rhetorical because mm-hmm. I think you're right. There's, a, there's an insight there. Even the language of testimony fits that. So yeah. a testimony uh, or a witness is directed towards a sort of existing reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's directed towards a story or a set of facts or a set of relations, right? Yes, yes. Um, if I'm understanding the term rightly. And so the idea that one would bear witness, and you're right, in our kind of more modern, more individualistic, subjectivistic kind of mindset, it would be easy to think that the language of testimony exclusively as what I know inside of me I testify out and here the language of testimony has a much more kind of public and communal structure where someone could testify to what's true about you that you didn't even know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is what you were pointing out in the, the subtle difference between verses 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, this testimony language is really key, like you said, and, and the relationship of father. Yeah. And it's funny to think of, like you said, I, I mean, there's some candidates I probably jumped the gun in my prayer to mention ways that the father testifies to the son, but at least in the, just in the epistle right now, and then we can talk about the gospel sooner or later. What, what does he mean when he talks about the testimony of God that yeah. is testified regarding his son? I mean, as is often the case in first John, it's, it's these very uh, general statements. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, what, what do you think at least, in the context of first John as a letter and this passage and what we know, we know very little, but what we know of the the situation in life of this letter, do you have some hunches of what he's referring to there? It's a wonderful question. It strikes me that the frailty of the early church Hmm. in that there were lots of people going around saying what they should all believe. And I don't mean frailty that God wasn't with them because I do believe that, God was with them and the spirit led them into all truth. But when I think about the way in which it must have felt quite precarious, you've got traveling teachers coming in and so much of the letters are, uh, you know, be wary of those who are coming. Even John, John knows of people who have left the community. They weren't really a part of us and they've left. So this sense of the possibility of hearing the wrong message would seem really ever present. I don't think that's not true for us. That still remains true, but it is different because we do have the revelation of scripture and we have church history to which we can look back. Everything was so fresh for them. So when I Mm. hear this statement, the testimony- Fresh and so fragile. (laughs) Fresh and fragile. Exactly. Exactly. So we did not receive the testimony of humans. Well, yes, they have heard from other humans who encountered Jesus, but it's not just that. 
the testimony of God is greater. God himself has testified to us. And I think that is manifest in the experiences that they had of the spirit in the community. And so it is their spiritual life, their spiritual communal life, that in addition to what they've heard from others is, is what gives them assurance and how they test. I think about test the spirits, which is also yeah. something that how do you know that someone is speaking, actually being led by the Holy Spirit? Because they will say Jesus is Lord. They will say Jesus has come in the flesh. The son has come in the flesh. They will say he truly is the son of God. What is for us now, you know, creedal Christianity, confessions of articulated at Chalcedon, for them were just these basic statements. That's how you test people. And still being contested in terms of their exact meaning. Precise. And we're just coming off that in the previous passage, which I recorded with, for regular listeners would have heard just last week oh, with Absent Joseph, oh, the fun. earlier part of chapter five. Okay. And, you know, those issues were very much on the forefront there, the blood and the water mm-hmm. and all that business. There's clearly something about, you know, who who is it that conquers the world? None other than the person who believes in Jesus, that Jesus is the son of God, right? And that wow. he came not only by water, but water and the blood. Mm-hmm. And that's where that language of testimony is first introduced and this weird business about the three that testify, spirit, water, and blood. Maybe we'll come back to that. Maybe we won't. But yeah, so the testimony, and it sounds like I'm hearing you say, and it's connected to this fragility that the author is is directing their attention onto sort of these core claims of faith. But at the same time, he's not, when he talks about the testimony of the father, his appeal is to something if not fragile in itself, is fragile for us. Because it is, as you said, it's this kind of, and tell me if I misunderstood you, but you made reference to to verse 11 and 12 Mm -hmm. and how it's like, well, the testimony of God is that he's given us life, you know? And so it's not, I mean, it's public, it's communal. It's not just an interior subjective experience. And yet at the same time, he's not making some appeal to the way the gospel John would, appealing to the specific works Right. that were performed in the life of Jesus. Great. Here, it's like, you, he doesn't use works here, but it's almost parallel. It's, yes. you know, believe me, but if you don't believe me, at least believe the works, Yes, you know, that the father has done through me. That's the logic in John chapter 12 yeah. and, and again in 13 and 14. So you get a similar, maybe a similar structure here. It's kind of like, well, we have the confession and then we have that life has been born in us. Surely that's a testimony Yes, uh, that God is still at work here. Maybe it's because I come out of traditions and I think we live in a culture that you like objective things, you can data points, you can look yeah. like if, if the appeal is to, well, how do you know God's testimony? Because you, you have life, all of you have life. <laughs> I mean, it is, I'm like, well, how do I test that? Like, how do I observe uh. that? Yeah, um, that I think maybe coming up, maybe those who would come out of a more experiential Christianity would say, well, yes, that that totally works. But if it's not a data point that you can look at external to yourself, that makes me feel a little nervous, if that makes yeah. sense. But that does basically he's saying, how do you know the testimony? The testimony is the witness is that you have life in yourselves, that we have life within ourselves. It's a first person plural. And this life is in his son. And so I'm writing to you. I'm writing these things in order that you might know that you have this eternal life, those who believe. And so it's it's like he wants to say, look to yourselves, look to your experience, what God has done among you. But I also want to give you assurance that this is real, that you've experienced this. 
Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And it's thinking a little more about their setting and the fragile experience that they're undergoing. And, And of course, we're at the end here of John and we've been in a series that our regular listeners have heard us kind of speculate a little bit about the kind of community and conflict that's going on here. And I do wonder if those who are kind of on the line who wonder, maybe I should go off with this group that left or, you know, cause I'm sure the other group, there's evidence from the letter that this other group is saying, you guys aren't legit anymore, but they're using Johannine language. It's very, they have the same lingo I'll say. And so there's this other group, which might have social and legal and family relations that are in the middle space between these groups. You could totally see someone saying, hey, you know, you don't really have life. Right. Right. That's often what I, I mean. I've, I've been around churches that, you know, have broken off from other churches. And what do you do? To, what you always talk about the other one is dead, right? right? <laughs> They're dead. The life is here. The energy is here, right? Yes. And you could see them being anxious, like, are we really yeah. alive or are we among the, the dead, the yeah. ignorant, the lost, because we are still talking about the law and obeying the law would be one thing and, and about the blood and flesh of Jesus as opposed to just spirit and water, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they would doubt. And I could see why what you're saying is really important to kind of say that in that kind of circumstance, an appeal to external facts actually doesn't really help. They need to say, no, no, you, you still have life. Yeah. Actually they're the ones who don't. (laughs) Right. Um, Because it's, it's really through your faith that you have this life. So check. And if you really confess that the son of God has come in the flesh, then you know that you have life. That's the weird thing is he's saying, look to your experience, but he's also saying, look to your own testimony, you know, and, yeah. and it's content. Like, I feel like there is an emphasis on experience, but also an emphasis on the, the content of what they testify. Absolutely. If you're saying the same things about Jesus that God, the father says about Jesus, mm-hmm. namely you are my son. <laughs> Yeah. my love, right? Then, then you know you're on the right track, I guess is maybe what I'm hearing him suggest. Yeah. No, but tell me if I'm mis- misreading. I want to. No, I think that's vitally important. And that, yeah, that goes back to, they are affirming not simplistic things, but very basic things to the Christian confession, the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ, his status as son of God, his status as a human. They're affirming that. And at the same time, that that affirmation has granted them a new experience. They have life. As you say that, it strikes me that I think often Christian communities, and this is probably true throughout history, have tended to fall into one precipice or another. Let's just think about the content. What are the five things we have to say? Intellectual assent. Or do we have this really robust emotional experience with God? But we always need both. And I think that's actually the beauty of the church. We can we can worship in our own places. We can't all worship together all the time. But when we learn from one another, I think we're reminded, oh, yeah, content and experience are both necessary. And I think John's doing that. That's a great point. I like that. That's a nice framework. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's very good. And it could very well be, and we don't know for sure, but this group that's broken off might be you know, claiming to have some kind of special experience, right. you know, and so he needs to say, well, okay, it, it's these creeds that matter. And yet it's not without its experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I hear you. I, I, I can see him kind of living in, in both of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you're right. I mean, it's, it's so weird. Like 
like just verse 11, right? And this is the testimony. And right there, I'm going to be like, ooh, like, of course, I read Paul, right? Or Acts. So I'm waiting to say that God raised Jesus from the dead, right? There's some public fact outside Uh of the community, you know, some apocalyptic reality. Yeah. But then he says that God has given to us eternity life. Yes. Right. And it's like, which, I mean, of course you could interpret that as having being both a content because that's mm-hmm. given once for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. But I think that's kind of not really what's up for debate in some ways mm-hmm. with these other groups. It's yeah. although there's some debate about the reality of that. They both claim to be Jesus followers of some yes. kind, but that that life has been given to you mm-hmm. and you still have it. it you didn't yeah. lose it, you know, uh, when this group went off. Yeah. And I mean, his next statement is really stark as this is how he talks, right? Those who do not have the son do not have life. So, I mean, it's not just that you have something qualitatively better. You have something that they do not. I mean, it really is a on and off kind of issue. They may claim they have life, but they just don't, period. It's so funny. First John has this reputation, rightly so, as being this epistle of love. And yeah, it is. Right, right. Uh, but it's also probably with maybe one or two other cases, one of the most polemically divisive texts in the whole of the New Testament, yes, which is kind so of interesting. True. Yeah. That this loving book is also such a divisive mm. all or nothing kind of book. Yeah. Well, let's let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we are looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. Before we started, we both kind of noted that the, the break-off of the text might be a little bit weird. So maybe we'll get into that. Maybe we won't. It's, it's, we'll decide. But uh, just to get us jump back in, uh, let me read the passage again. I'm going to use Raymond Brown's translation from his monster commentary. So yeah, 9 through 13. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is even greater. For this is God's testimony, that he has testified on behalf of his own son. The person who believes in the son of God possesses that testimony within himself, while the person who does not believe God has made him a liar by refusing to believe in the testimony that God has testified on behalf of his own son. Now, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his own son. The person who possesses the son possesses life, while the person who does not possess the son of God does not possess life. I have written this to you so that you may know that you possess this eternal life, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Yeah, so uh, what do you want to explore here? Is there Are there some loose thoughts from our first conversation or are there other issues you want to bring up? I know I can think of a thousand different ways we could go with this conversation, but I thought I'd open it up to you. I'm just struck again. We had spent a good amount of our time in 11, 12, 13, but 10 is incredibly personal, actually. So the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in auto. 
in himself. Yep. Let's see, there, there's a variant there, but it doesn't change the singularness of it. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's incredibly personal. And then that stark difference again, the one who doesn't believe, you know, the, the exact parallel would be that person doesn't have the testimony within himself, mm-hmm. but instead that person it's not just that they lack that testimony internally. They have actually done an active sin against God by calling God a liar. That's right. That's intense. It's not just that they lack a blessing of God, but they have committed a sin of commission <laughs> in saying. So I think it really does go back to, and it all hinges upon what does one believe about the son? So unless you are willing to accept the terms that God has given the son, then you are making God out to be a liar. What a chilling warning. I was just reading a piece in Christianity Today. I'm always months behind. So it was some reflection on idolatry. But the temptation for us to say, God, this is whom I'd like for you to be. (laughs) This Hmm. is whom I'd like for your son to be. And John is telling his community, we don't get to define those terms. We may not, especially those maybe kind of... um, in love with Gnostic or Platonic ideas, you may not like the idea that God has suffered and died on a Roman cross, but you don't get to choose. <laughs> and it's, uh-huh. um, it makes me think, what, what are things about God that we don't prefer, that we might wish were different, but that we too have to put ourselves under the authority of that testimony, not tinker with it? That could be an interesting exploration. Yeah, and that brings back this tension you already identified at the beginning of this sort of deeply personal internal testimony of the spirit, but one that even though it's internal and personal, doesn't mean we set its terms. It's still a God-given testimony and a divine guidance. I don't think we can evade the weirdness of verse seven and eight Mm, that, that, that the, the lectionary in its wisdom and or folly has just skipped over to avoid the, probably to avoid the textual problems here. Wow. And it might just be a distraction and it's just weird. And of course, I mean, this used to be a classic text on Trinity Sunday yeah. until it was uh, discovered that, guess what? Uh, <laughs> even the Greek texts that say there's three that testify Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, that even the Greek texts were probably just translations of later Latin texts. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So instead it's, you know, indeed there are, you know, earlier it's, you know, starting with six, latter part of six, the spirit is the one who testifies. Well, we got to start at verse six top. So Jesus Messiah, this is the one who came by water and blood, not in water only, but in water and in blood. Mm -hmm. And the spirit is the one who testifies Mm -hmm. for the spirit is the truth. Indeed, there are three who testify the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are one. And then if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is even greater. Mm. So I want to just pause right there and say like, how does that affect the way we interpret the content of this? Mm -hmm. I mean, are these spirit, water, blood, spirits tricky, but water and blood, these maybe are slightly more human testimony. Is, Is he referring to those when he says human testimony? And then he's saying, but we also have the divine directly divine testimony. This is a weird passage, Amy. You got, (laughs) this is a weird one. 
And it, it actually, makes, it makes me sad that the lectionary would cut it again. I, you know, I do defer to the wisdom of those who really masterfully on, on the whole have put together the lectionary. And it's a jumping off point, right? So it's right. like, you know, then you right. they just don't feel it's not a straight jacket. It's a, right. pla- it's a, it's exactly. a diving board, not a straight jacket. Exactly. So jump Love off it. it. Yeah. Go different places, but it's such a great teaching moment of yeah. uh, it's such a great teaching moment uh, about textual history, actually, I think, but it just, it makes me really excited to explore. What do you think he means by water and blood? feels like there's multiple yeah. possible reference there. I mean, well, I at the very least the verb testimony is central to John chapter 19, where the water and the blood flow out of the side of Jesus. Yes. And then it's, and then there's this pause that's often put in like parentheses because mm-hmm. interpreters don't know what to do with it. Although it's the crescendo of, of the passion story in John, yeah. when it says he who bore witness to this bears witness to us for it. And his testimony is true. Yes. And it's like, it uses the word testify like three, four times yes. referring to the beloved disciple who was there at the cross, right. who saw the water and blood come out. And there's reference to the spirit there too. He let go of his spirit. It exactly. says when he dies, I mean, that's, that's a, that's an idiom, but I think it's an intentional use that he expirated, you know, he expired. There's a reference to spirit. That's at least one. And maybe you're going to mention some others, but it, it seems that there's at least one element is that the testimony is the testimony of the beloved disciple and mm-hmm. the testimony that's been handed on mm-hmm. and this anti-Gnostic claim that Jesus really was died yes, and the blood and water flowed out. Although it's, Maybe likely that the these other followers that have broken off would be like, yeah, 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 like we we know about that, but what about now, you know, or something like yeah. that. So, were you thinking of John nineteen, or did something else come to mind alongside no, that? No, I was, and I think I think that's right, and especially the connection with the word martyreo, with the word testify. I think they think that's yeah. precisely right. I was only going to then expand the referent back to the baptism. Uh, I think his inauguration through water and then expand back to his birth. So, I mean, of course, the other person at the cross for John is Mary. Right. So it's not just the beloved. Not named. And not Uh, named. though. Not named. The mother. Interestingly, the mother. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And the only, the other time we see her though, is when there is water that's changed into wine, which of course looks like blood. blood. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Yes. They people always say like, well, there's no Eucharist, there's no Eucharist last supper moment in John. Well, it's like, yeah, because it's everywhere instead exactly. of one place. <laughs> precisely, precisely right. Yeah. So just I don't know, I'm just kind of imagining yeah. like the real hmm. community life of those who are receiving John's letters. I don't know. Try this out. See what you think. He's like, you've heard from me. I was standing there. You have heard from Mary, who is in my care, who was standing there and saw the water and blood came out. I always then think of, and I'm instructed by reading a lot about Mm. the cross and her presence there. It is such a birth moment, too, because birth also is a rush of water and blood. That would and not the church be is born as Israel, her. the mother, is given yeah. to the beloved disciple, right? Right, right. So, I mean, she could say, hey, I saw this twice. <laughs> I saw it when he died. I saw it when he was born. He was real. So, you've got this. And I've seen it again and again, every new believer right. comes, right? Because yeah. that's spoken of as a birth, exactly. especially in First John. Especially in John, yeah. yes. 
in John's writings. Yeah. So mm. you've heard from myself, the author, John is saying, you've heard from Mary, but our testimony is human testimony and it's good. But there is the testimony then of the spirit who testifies to your hearts. So I see almost like a parallel, the human testimony to water and blood, I think in two witnesses, John, the beloved disciple and Mary. And then the third witness is the spirit who is that personal communication, that link between us and God. They are what unity. And so he says, you have the human testimony and the testimony of God who sends the spirit is even greater. So you're brought into this story. Amy, that's yeah. super cool. Well, I, I just, that's my blowing my mind. Yeah. Because it, it just in this, in terms of just the syntax of the, the text. Yeah. The human testimony, which is not being negated in verse nine. No, no. It's very tempting to translate it. We don't accept human, you know. No, if we accept it, but there is one that's greater. Mm-hmm. Again, that same pattern appears in John 7 when he says the testimony of John yes. the Baptist, which would be water. Yes. That, that that's, uh, that that's listen to him, but the, the, the witness I have is even better. Yes. The testimony witness thing, dear listeners, your patience with us is appreciated. These are translating the same word, martero. I know you know that, Amy, but. For our listeners, like, mm. so when you hear us switching back and forth between testimony and witness, because one, mm. sometimes the grammar works better for one or the other when it's a noun versus a verb. It's all the same word in the original. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, yeah, just the syntax of the text, this human testimony seems to be referring to the previous sentence, right? Mm-hmm. The, the water and blood, maybe spirit too. Again, right. not that even though the water and blood and spirit are that of the eternal son. Yes. He is also human. So in that sense, there's a human testimony, not human only, but right. But more importantly, like you're saying, we who've handed this on to you back to the beginning of first John, right? What yeah. we've heard and seen and yeah. touched, we've handed on to you. Well, that's human testimony. Exactly. Valid. Yeah. But but then there's a direct sounds like right. there's also this this di- direct divine testimony mm-hmm. about his son in the the life that you have mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Which in a way still is a kind of appeal to resurrection because in some sense, when are we going to really, really know? Like know for knowing sure, not, well, let me not knowing for sure. We can know for sure now. When are we going to know by sight and not just by faith? Yeah, It's when God raises us from the dead at the end, right? I mean, in a way, this is a resurrection reference, but Absolutely. to ours. And so to use Pauline language, the down payment of the spirit now for for our experience it's kind of like an appeal to experience that still is yet to be completely fulfilled right yeah we are god's children now but what we will be has not yet been made manifest right absolutely yeah because god has given to us not just life but eternal life and so we can start that now but we can't really fully know what that is until we escape mortality so there is something yet to be possessed yeah and if this letter's being written even after the death of the beloved disciple. I don't know if mm. you, your thoughts on that. It would have all the same and even more power mm. to kind of recognize, to say, you had this human testimony, first generation. That first generation is dying mm. off now. Yeah. Maybe the mother's already died. Maybe yeah. maybe the beloved disciple is, this is his last, last letter, you know. Mm. But even when I'm dead and gone, you still have the testimony. Right. You're not dependent on my living witness. Right. You have my letters. I mean, you have my you have my gospel. <laughs> you have my letter following up to to say don't interpret that gospel right. in the crazy <laughs> ways that other people are. That's one way of 
Absent and I had a nice debate about different ways of interpreting the relationship between the two okay. letters. If we want to, we don't have to get into that now. But do you tend to assume the the letter comes after the gospel, or are oh, you, I do. Definitely. Are you from the other? Okay. No. Well, he yeah. and I were on the same page on that. We just were discussing how to think of the how much time passed and how to think right. of how different they are. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, that was just an aside. But just the thought that thought of like you're losing your most beloved human mm-hmm. testimonies. Right. And again, I don't think that's on the surface. I'm just kind of adding a layer. That's clearly an issue like in John 21, right? right. That that's kind of on the mind. So that's another possible layer that with the loss of, you know, these kind of definitive living eyewitnesses to the water and the blood. Yeah. And it works kind of nice because the water and blood could do point backwards in a certain way, though they could be sacramental references oh, to yeah. baptism and, and Lord's Supper, though that's not explicit enough to guarantee but it's like they're introduced water and blood in the past the one who came by water and blood Mm -hmm. and you've accepted our human testimony that has been handed on through time Mm -hmm. but then the spirit's the one that's then added then and and but put but put in first position right yes yes the spirit the water and the blood and i agree with you that even though the language of the spirit is is drops out in nine to twelve the whole thing's about the spirit right Right. that's the testimony right yes is in you, right? Right, right. exactly. So, <laughs> so the irony is, even though this explicit Father, Son, Holy Spirit verse was added, you know, a thousand years later, this is a Trinitarian chapter. Oh, it's not later Nicene Trinity, but it's... It's there, yeah. You have all the persons at work. Absolutely. Yeah. And that seems like such a comfort for this generation, as you're saying, as they see those immediate followers of Jesus start to reach the end of their life, either through martyrdom or old age, like we can trust them. I mean, that's so much of what John is, right? Like we were there, we handled him, our hands touched him, but you aren't dependent upon only us. And so that, that you also have the spirit directly. I think I grew up in a Christianity that was tempted to imagine my experience with God is like, I can just jump back. I don't need church history. I just go back to the Bible and Jesus. And I think that's actually the beauty of kind of revivalistic traditions is that they emphasize this personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. And I think every generation needs that. That's what John is offering them. The testimony has been given to you. But we also need to celebrate those human witnesses that are in that long chain as well. We don't in any way need to invalidate that. We need to learn from them and then double check our experience over what they say and, you know, double check the tradition against our experience. It should be it should be mutually informing. But it just strikes me that what he's saying to this probably second generation Christianity is so applicable to every generation thereafter. Right. That's a good insight. Yeah. Oh, that that's really good. This kind of, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of Paul, but Paul is so clearly living and working in the milieu of first generation Christianity. Yes. Right. And so I wonder if that's why we have a harder time making sense of his texts sometimes. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas like the yeah. gospels and most of the quote general epistles. Yeah second generation. Yes. The questions are asking. And so their, their experience is more analogous to us in the sense of questions of distance, questions of death, questions of tradition and experience and how they play off each other. When you bring questions like that to Paul's letters, they just 
they're like water off a duck's back that you don't get clear answers from Paul because that's not the questions he's asking. He's in the apocalyptic energy of the first generation, which is what I love about Paul, Right. but also why I think he's sometimes harder for us Mm. to interpret because you just sketched in a precisely clear way why there's a kind of natural connection between mm-hmm. us and and letters written to a second generation. I know that's big for Hebrews, yeah. your special book, yeah. but most of the quote general epistles have a kind of second gen feel, don't they Absolutely. to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, even that, that's a really good transition too, to, to, to thinking about preaching too. And Absolutely. Like how it, yeah. What were you going to say about Peter? Sorry. I think. Oh, I, I just, that's something about Peter. I mean, Peter can say, I saw these things, but he is reflecting on, wow, you know, we have now, it's been several years. And so how do we appropriate, how do we live by looking to this example, but we're moving forward. So even I think that's true for him as, you know, probably. It could be that this this kind of proto-Gnostic, proto-Docetic, whatever movement, however Mm -hmm. we name it, that's broken off from John is a kind of second generation temptation that says, well, yeah, he did his little, he did his little dance, death and resurrection dance, but that was just a show. Right. We're interested in the risen son now. Yes. Yes. Who really is just this eternal son, the God, the the word that created everything. I mean, they could appeal to, there's quotes from John that would fit right Right. into this Gnostic vision. If you, if you wanted to proof text your way to it and you see the author here sort of calling back, no, we are part of a tradition, Uh something that's been handed on. We are still faithful to God's Torah, you know, and God's commandment. He, he's emphasizing that continuity and tradition, yet also recognizing that, yeah, a divine testimony directly into your heart is superior. Yes. I mean, that quote could come straight out of a Gnostic, right? God's testimony is better than human testimony. That sounds like well, how you and I grew up. I don't yes. need right. human right. traditions. Right. I have God's spirit in my heart, right? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. quote this again as a proof text. Yes. But in the large, that's why I'm glad we looked at the previous couple of verses. Absolutely. Located that there's both tradition, mm-hmm. human tradition, human testimony, and this direct work of the spirit in you. And yet if those aren't aligned, you know that the thing that's in you is actually, you're just making stuff up. It's not really the spirit. That, I mean, actually, I think you have said, you've said what is true about this break off community. They're only claiming spiritual testimony. They are cutting themselves off from the human testimony. And John is saying, Hey, I, you have to keep the human testimony, but that doesn't mean that you lose out on the spirit testimony. You actually get both as you stay tethered to the tradition. That's where the spirit of life is. And those who are claiming the spirit of life without the human testimony, that's a fraud. That's not actual life. Yeah. Fraud. That's right. Making God a liar. Right. Let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. We're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Amy Peeler yet again. So glad to have her here. And we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. So let's explore some sermon starters. If you were preaching on this text, obviously there might be some more study you'd do, but nevertheless, based on the basic trend of where we've gone, where where might you run with a text like this? What might be your focus or theme or Yeah, I I um I probably I probably would build upon this last statement. I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. 
again, this is off the top of the head. So take this for what it is. But I'm struck by how often students in particular want to have conversations about assurance of salvation. How do I really know? I meet with several who don't quite know what to do with questions and doubt and are longing for that kind of never question, never doubt. Like, how do you know you actually have a relationship with God? That is a felt need, I think, for many believers. And so that strikes me that John is is seeking to offer real assurance. I don't think that that closes off any questions, but he really is seeking to offer real assurance for them. So I probably would lead in with, hey, how do you know? How could you know that you have eternal life? as kind of a grab question, and then seeing where God might lead to to offer what assurance is possible out of this text. Well, that's really good. I So, playing with that, this might be moving in a more kind of creative writing direction than some of our listeners are comfortable with, but alas, it's it's how I approach preaching. And it might be a little cheesy, but I'll, I'll pitch it. Thinking about that question, because that clicked with me too, and it was the language then of witnessed develop that. And just the imagery even of a, and you can even, again, you don't want to be too cheesy, but a little cheese can be okay, uh-huh. of of calling witnesses, oh. right, to the stand uh-huh. Uh-huh. and really developing that. And and I, I thought of it because of your mention of the mother of Jesus and the beloved mm-hmm. disciple. Mm-hmm. You could call these witnesses, like you could mm-hmm. kind of play the the lawyer and call one one witness after another, but directed as the audience listening in they're talking about you to kind of put us in their shoes, in the shoes of these people and to have it be written to us as I think it is. And, and, and I would think you could, you could grab some stuff from John seven, whereas there's this kind of seven and eight yeah. or is it five? It's both five and eight. Have there's, a lot there's, a, there's a place where he kind of calls a bunch of witnesses. He has like, you're right in five. That's already there. So five, seven and eight, take a glance listener, but uh, where he kind of calls John the Baptist and Mm -hmm. talks about him for a little bit. And then he references Moses. You have the scriptures have testified about me. And then my father testifies about me in my works. So you could call some witnesses, you know, you could have a couple miracle stories. You could talk about the baptism of Jesus, you know, and you could build up to the beloved disciple and to... Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm-hmm. you, you could call some, you know, call a pastor who had done some baptisms last week, you know, or oh. pre- and have them talk about the water. Yeah, you, you guys have been baptized. We, you know, that's a public sign, yeah. even when you're feeling doubt. You could do this a kind of series and then kind of build it all up to what is God's witness about you. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, you know, you could end with a bunch of quotes, not just from First John, but throughout the Bible, from Isaiah yeah. and other places, just saying. I've chosen you and I love you and you're mine, you know, like really kind of just build a, just a strong word of affirmation. Yes. You know, yes. Though, you know, even as you say that this would take, I mean, every sermon does, but it, but it would feel like it would take a lot of pastoral wisdom of prayer of real dependence upon the leading of the spirit, because I do think of people who really probably do have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, but are often tempted by self-doubt. And so they would need to hear this assurance. This is who God has called you to be and chosen you. And look at this testimony. I think I love that idea of calling witnesses. I might even then, you know, to kind of work against the, well, I just jump back to the Bible, bring some examples from church history of people who testified to, and, and you saw the power of God at work in them and their witness has come down to us. 
But then I also think of people who actually might need to be kind of shaken awake, shaken out of a stupor of just imagining that they're a Christian because they're just along for the ride. I was just talking with a young man who had grown up at Christian school, Christian home, very involved in his church, but he went on a retreat to the camp that that Wheaton owns, Honey Rock, and they said, okay, go out and do an hour-long devotion every day, just read scripture and pray. And he realized that week, he was a sophomore, he was their student government leader. He's like, I never have spent time reading and praying. Why haven't I done that? And over the course of that week, he realized, I'm actually not a Christian. Like, this has been my culture. It's been my family. It's been my use of my free time. I have never had a personal relationship. And so there's that tension in preaching of how do you offer assurance to those who need it and offer a wake-up call to those who, do you really have life within yourself? <laughs> uh, do you really? Yeah. Um, and so how could you how could you preach in such a way that both hear that call? Or, <laughs> just to throw this out. Complicate it, yeah. From one preacher to another, because I completely agree that both of those tasks need to be performed. And the question is, is the task to find a way to speak to both or to be open that yeah. in the process of your development, you realize, you know, I really need to focus on one or the precisely, other. Precisely, precisely. Um, yeah. Because sometimes those choose your own adventure altar calls kind of don't really land. No, if, that's a good If this, advice. then that, if no, this, I mean, I do it all the time. I, I got to confess, I do it all the time. Mm. So I'm chief of sinners. I'd be like, maybe you need this, then blah, okay. blah, blah. Right. You're like this, blah, blah, blah. So I do that all the time, but but I've come to, when I'm on the receiving end of it, it mm. often doesn't really register for me. It's kind of like, I don't know, sometimes it's okay to focus your energies on one, uh, but then maybe the next week, (laughs) preach the other sermon. Right, right. Yeah. But you're right. It's that classic, how do you preach to, you know, what's, there's an old phrase uh, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that's, I think a standard for a whole year of preaching and teaching, not every sermon, because every sermon does both moments of awakening might get missed. Which, which which direction? I agree with you that that's ultimately a pastoral question. I have no doubt about that. Mm. Which which way do you think the energy of this text is directing as you read it today? You know, it's when you think when you think of the purpose or the 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 direction, mm-hmm. the dynamic of a text. I think there's a way to be faithful to the letter of, and the spirit of this text in either direction. Mm. But having said that. Do you sense there's kind of the emphasis is more one way than the other? Oh, yeah. I think the emphasis is assurance here. I'm writing so that you can know. These things I have written so that you may know that you have have. eternity life. (laughs) But it's there then in the second half. Those who believe. Those who believe. Yes, exactly. And that phrase, I mean, is like straight out of John 1, verse 12. It's the center point if you believe there's a chiasm in John 1, 1 through 18, which I believe there is. The yeah. middle line, the center point, X marks the spot, yeah. is, uh, you know, to all those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God to mm. those who believe into his name. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end of the book, John 20, you know, the first ending before the, tw- the epilogue or as it were. Yes. This has been written so that you may have faith in his name and therefore have life. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like all of those words, faith, name, life, all three of those are right here. Yeah. 
But interesting contrast. Actually, I almost want to get that out. You could almost do a little sermon by putting those next to each other. Ooh, that could be fun. Um, just to kind of like, what was the? Why was the Bible written? <laughs> right. Not that it's, so, but, uh, yeah. Because John 20 says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. So there you go. Have been written same so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, their son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's like, it's all there. But the difference, the difference is says that John is written so that you may believe right. this is written so that, you know, as one who believes yes. that you have life. So you're right. It is kind of written to assure yes. those who've already believed that you really have this life. Yeah. And I'm stuck too. I mean, it's, it's there in all the verses that you've referenced, but it's not just that you believe in the son of God, but you believe in the name of the son of God. Mm-hmm. For me, that really does tie back to the fact that, it is God the Father who has testified about the Son. And how does God exalt? And, and uh, okay, I'm drawing from Paul here. But I think about. Well, you can do Johannine one, John, tw- John 17. He says, The name which you have given me. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Your name yes. which you have given me. So there is a. Yes. I can tell you were doing a Pauline. Yes. Flipping two way of doing it. Day before yesterday. Yeah. So it's right there. But yeah. Uh, but I mean, this is evidence that that the Philippians too may have had a prehistory behind precisely. because it's developed. There's a Pauline way of developing it, but there's a Johannine way. Yeah. And a Hebrews way of developing it. This yes. Is chapter one. He is better than the angels by virtue of the name that God has. There you go. Him, so Let's see all three then agree. Those three witnesses. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Paul, John and Hebrews that God has given his name to this son. Oh, yeah. No, that's really good. If you wanted to take it in a, well, I think you could do both. You could re- reflect and invite your listeners to reflect on um, the beautiful relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit here, as we talked about the seeds of Trinitarian thought, and then say, well, what does that mean for us? Well, we get incorporated into this life by yeah. uh, having this testimony within us. Yeah, I think if I did the little... uh if if I ran with this little idea of kind of calling the witnesses, witnesses. Yeah. you probably want to, you know, build up with the final three being yes. spirit, son, yes. and father. Let Absolutely. father get the last, right? That would be kind of right. And show it, that, about, that could be really yeah. fun to show it in this text that they are all present. And then, I mean, if you had the time, you could kind of do the, well, and there's this textual variant that some scribe says, hey, I already see this in the yeah. text. I'm just going to make it more explicit. And so it, it's not that the Trinity was cut out of versions of this that don't use those later texts, but that, that that's a witness. That scribe was a witness. He stood in this line of testimony and he said, I see this explicitly. I'm just going to name it. He's not wrong. It's just that yeah. it probably wasn't in the original. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, he, you could slip that in just for just for kick. So he it, could be it, one of your or witnesses. That might, have been in, that might be in the Sunday school lesson afterward. After yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for giving time uh, to the text and to our listeners. It's fun. Yeah, I teach First John next week. So I was thinking oh, good. our conversation will give me lots to reflect on for class next week. So. Oh, I hope so. And I'm, I'm certain that it's given a lot uh, to our listeners. So thanks to you. Thanks to our listeners as always. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. 
Thanks especially to our patrons, our patron saints who support the show financially. I don't see a cent of that. That goes to the production team behind the scenes. So thanks for supporting. And if you haven't become a supporter, take a look at patreon.com slash fresh text to see ways you can support the show. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. So uh, what is biblical storytelling and, and why does it matter? And how'd you come to this? You know, Well, you know, it's interesting. My wife, Sophia, and I were just talking about it last night that I have been involved with storytelling for over 40 years. We were teaching as adjuncts at Oral Roberts University as part of our work study. And our supervisor asked us if we would start giving some seminars for some of the students outside of class time. And I had no idea what to to, uh, say. So I said, well, let me try this. And I I came up with the title, Tell It With a Story. And I talked about how storying and telling stories is a great way to communicate since this was oral communication. And so that's been over 40 years ago. And from that, I just started really getting into Bible storytelling when I went to a a seminar that Tom Boomershine was conducting in Dallas at that point. He was at Perkins doing a, a project. And Tom Boomershine is a renowned scholar, and he did his PhD in basically oral tradition with, with Bible storytelling. To, to give you an understanding of the significance of this, he was doing it at a time when this was not in vogue, and he as part of his presentation, did the entire book of Mark. He recited it orally in Greek, not just English, but in Greek. So he could do it in Greek and in English. And so long story short, Tom wrote a book uh, called The Story Journey, I believe it is. And we had the opportunity to actually teach, team teach Bible storytelling here at Wesley Seminary. We were down in Indianapolis and we team taught this. And I also worked with a guy who was a former missionary to Brazil named Jack Day, and he was doing some instruction. I went down to Alabama where he was, stayed at his house, and went through a little course with him, and he wrote a little book. And that was my first real introduction to Bible storytelling. From there, I started doing some workshops at at the old shop that I used to be a part of down in Nashville with the United Methodist Church. And then here at Wesley, I really started teaching this as an elective, and it's been probably one of the more fulfilling courses that I've ever had because it's so enjoyable. So that's the kind of the background. Getting to what Bible storytelling is, it's kind of two camps. Sometimes you hear the term Bible storying, and that is really where the idea is you take the biblical text and you fit it to your mouth, meaning that you may pick up the NIV or NRSV or whatever your translation is, and you read it, read it, read it, or listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, and you get it into your mouth. Now, some of those words may not fit your mouth, so you might come with a substitute word that means the same. It's not exactly as the text, but you you are putting it in your mouth, as, as they say it, and you also are embodying it. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Bible storytelling, uh, as they, they say it really in uh, the folks that really do this professionally, try to stay really close to the text because, as Tom Boomershine would say, the Bible writers were good storytellers, and they chose their words appropriately. And even the translators have taken care with the wording. So try to stay as close to that as possible. So you kind of have two camps, but the overall idea is that you want to be 80% accurate 
and you're telling of the story because you're telling it orally. Now, people in the audience might say, wow, you're, you're going to let some, some 20% go? Well, if you really think about the first century oral Bible storytellers, because most of the Bible was shared orally, it wasn't 100% replicated everywhere they went as well. I'm in the process of preparing a class for the Mississippi Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, a course of study on hermeneutics, and, and we're going to be looking at the Gospels in particular. And they talk about how the early Bible storytellers, the writers, if you will, we use that word writer, and they were really listening to it's a lot of oral tradition, yeah, yeah. And, and the people weren't reading, they were listening to the scriptures the passages that they were sharing or the bits, the units of, of stories that they were telling were shared by the storyteller. And the storyteller may alter it a little bit according to the, to the audience and the purpose and, and those sorts of things. So we really shouldn't get bent out of shape if we hear that 80% accuracy piece. So Bible storytelling for me is, is so important because it really takes you out of the realm of experiencing the gospel with your eyes to experiencing it with your whole body. And this is what I mean by this. You look at a passage of scripture and you get it in your mouth, as, as we say, you get it off the page. It's got to get off the page and in the air is what Tom Boomershine would say, where you take a, a biblical passage and this works best with narrative. So if you look at a narrative in the gospels, say you know, even, even the first chapter of, of Mark, uh, you, you start looking at point of view the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my before you a prophet to prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness. And people from, and he was proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from the entire Judean countryside and all of the people in Jerusalem came to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John wore clothing of camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, there's one coming after me who's more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus of Nazareth came from Galilee and was baptized by John in the river Jordan. And as he came out of the water, he saw the sky torn apart and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Then a voice from heaven you are my son, my beloved. With you, I'm pleased. And immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. Wild animals were there and angels ministered to him. So now as you do that, you start becoming part of the scene. You're a participant. You you imagine what's going on in your mind's eyes. For me, it's like a a movie going on, and I see the scenes. And you oh, can as a listener, just then I was just utterly absorbed. You know, it was just completely. Yeah. Ended, you know. Yeah. Oh, so the wow. you know the other part is so there's two things that are important for me. One is what it does for you as the Bible storyteller. It gets in you. You are embodying it. So you know, I know this is going to be an audio thing, but it gets into your your mouth as we say it. 
it gets into your mind because you start seeing it. And if I were, if we were doing this live, I'd be standing up and I would have certain gestures that I'm doing that become part of the storytelling because my body, there's, there's a kind of a memory, you know, motor yeah, memory. That are happens. those gestures pretty consistent for you when you work on a text? Do you kind of work on it and a certain yeah. movement here and it's connected to the story, even if it's abstract? Like if even if the viewer wouldn't always be able to interpret every body movement for you, they're connected to each phrase in in a certain way. Yeah, there there are yeah. there are some passages where there are specific movements that are tied to the text. For example, when I'm telling the story of the bent over woman, mm, uh, yeah, I've heard you words, do that one. <laughs> the word the word Sabbath for me becomes a, the, it's the point of the pericope. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and I found myself taking my finger and identifying the word Sabbath. You know, so that's the point of it. And then we go on, and and later on in the passage where. Where, where Jesus is is chiding the, the ruler of the synagogue, why shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be healed on the Sabbath? And I keep, you know, I keep pointing, like, this is this is what we're doing. It's, it's on the Sabbath. And, and so for me, that's part of the embodiment that you, your body tells you how to tell the story. And we're all different. So the other beauty of this is Bible storytelling is, hermeneutics because you're interpreting the text by the way that you tell it. Yeah, it's strangely both more individual and more communal, you know, because the the text with the eye, a scripture, a a written text read with the eye silently in the mind is highly individualistic. And if it's being read out loud, you add the communal element, but it kind of has this almost, it can have an authority distance where it's like, I have the text, you don't, I'm reading, you listen. And sometimes we solve that by saying, turn in your Bibles, but then everyone becomes an individual reader yes, and yes. we're a collective and not a community. Exactly. And whereas when I've seen you do this, I think the first time I heard you do it, it was that one. It was the one from Luke, the bent over woman. Yeah. And it was interesting what you said. And tell me if this is a general principle, whether taught explicitly or, or as an implicit curriculum, you said that you noticed yourself pointing as you're yes. practicing. Is that correct? Yes. yes. And are, are often the gestures and, and even the changes that you might make to the language, does that often flow from just paying attention as you're practicing and noticing what almost kind of happens on accident, as it were? Exactly. It's, it's like doing a, a close reading of the text. You know, we talk about doing that in, in scholarship, a close read of the text. And really, uh, Bible storytelling is a close read of the text because you're looking at the setting, you're looking at the plot, you're looking at the characters, you're looking at the point of view, you're looking for whatever problems, and you're looking for the tone. So, for example, the beginning of Mark, ah, the there's, tone, yeah. there are a lot of different voices going on. First, there's the narrator, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's narrator. And then he says, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, then I switch voices because I become that prophet, the voice of one crying yeah. out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You know, that's that's another voice. Then you go back to narrator talking about John and what he's doing. And then you become John as he starts proclaiming, there's one coming after me who's more powerful than I am. Then you, later on, Jesus comes you be, you, and, and you hear, uh, you, you see him coming out of the water. And then there's the voice of God coming from the heavens as, as the heavens are, are ripped open. And then later on, you actually hear Jesus because he then goes to Galilee and, and proclaims the good news there. Then he goes out and he and recruits his first uh, disciples. So 
You switch voices because that's a different personality. You look at the passage and say, so what was that, the emotional state? So going back to the bent over woman, I have the students, when we teach this passage, walk around the room bent over for a minute or so, so that they get into what was the mindset of this woman who was bent over for 18 years? And what's it like? How is she feeling when Jesus calls her to him? I said, because you become that woman. Are you surprised? You remember, and you have to think about the context. You're in a male-dominant society. (laughs) You know, you're low on the totem pole, and you've just been called out. The spotlight is on you. How are you feeling? Now, whether or not you're saying anything or not, when you're doing Bible storytelling, you know, you've got Jesus seeing that woman and calling her. So from the point of Jesus calling her, you then, I bend, I bend over and I become that bent over woman. And I have to decide how am I reacting? I'm not saying a word, but I'm communicating what that woman may have been experiencing. Does she immediately kind of shuffle over there or does she, is she hesitant? You know, it's like, why did you call me out? What you, what are you feeling? So as you get into it emotionally, your body then begins to tell you what you should be doing. And as you do it over and over and over again, that becomes part of the storytelling because you become the woman, you become Jesus that is rebuking the the ruler of the synagogue. And when the ruler of the synagogue is there, I I usually hold up six fingers. There are six days, six days when work should be done. Why not come on one of those days and be healed? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. And it's like, it seems to me as I hear you, there's, there's obviously there's a lot of cognitive work going on before and during the preparation of interpreting the text as you were mentioning, but then allowing us to begin and as we begin to sort of embody that and experience it in our body, then there's this kind of holistic cognitive interpretation going on because then the body starts to be giving us feedback Yes. And helping us then turn around and see things in the text that were already there. I mean, yes. you said you said eighty percent accuracy is the standard, mm-hmm. but okay, sure, you know, like you said, risk there, whatever. But it's like you know, you almost want to say I, I could read the text out loud and be a hundred percent accurate and have lost 80% of the life of the yes, text. Yes. Now, not all readings, there are ways to read. And we might yeah. talk about that later there because there are ways of incorporating some of these principles just into, into the reading of a text. But in general, I kind of feel like, boy, I'd trade that 20 to get that 80% that we're always missing, the, basically from the neck down as it exactly. were, right? We're getting, yeah. we're getting the 20%, we're getting 100% right of 20% of the text. That's right. When we read it exactly but only with our quote heads. Yes. Right? Yeah. Cause of course we're always embodied. There's no disembodied reading. It's, it's a, it's, it's always a reduction to one aspect of the body. True. Namely the, the head, right. The voice and the eyes yes. and the ears and the brain inside of there is kind of controlling the experience yeah. uh, and the yeah. way that the body then is communicating back to you. Wow. That's man. That's really, there's a hermeneutical holism yeah. uh, entailed in this way of reading. You can encourage people to do this, even if they feel like the possibility of, of performing a text in public might be yes. far off to some of our listeners. Yeah. They could start doing this stuff today with That's just it. texts they're studying. That's it. Because it's going to affect the way they read scripture, even exactly. if they're not ready to take the next step, which I would encourage everyone to try. But if people are, I mean, you know, there are fact, there are things, you know, personalities yeah. and contexts and things where you might not feel ready to take that plunge, but 
everyone is able to, Hey, once you start, and at least when you're stuck, when you're doing sermon prep, the best thing to do is get up out of your chair, Yes, walk around and try to tell the text as best you remember it without looking back and checking if you got it right, you know, just experience it. it and see if you come back then noticing things. Yeah. Yeah. 